Hi, I'm Eric Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. I can't believe I'm going to admit this, but when I was in college studying design in the late 2000s, I was what we would now call an Apple fanboy. I watched all the keynotes and followed the company announcements and even had a picture of Steve Jobs hanging above my desk. Apple, it seemed to me, was one of the few companies that seemed to really understand design. It's hard to remember now when it seems every brand wants to be seen as design-driven, but 15 years ago, it was rare for a company to talk about design and sort of honor design as much as Apple did. I wasn't alone in this fandom, I think. I had classmates who were interested in Apple like I was, designers around the world were interested in Apple. In my classes, I remember Apple being used as examples for designing everything from advertising to the interfaces to the products themselves. Design trends, the sort of look of advertising and digital culture, it seemed flowed from Apple spreading across the cultural landscape. While my fandom has waned as I got older, my interest in how the company operates has not. And my interest in how Apple thinks about design, especially as they've become the biggest company in the world, is still very strong. Is design to them the packaging? Is it aesthetics? Or is it embedded in every decision? Following the death of Steve Jobs and the exit of its longtime design chief, Johnny Ive, is Apple still as committed to design? A new book called After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul by Trip Mickle, in a way, answers these questions. The book is ostensibly about Apple in a post-Steve Jobs world, but it's also a book about design and its role in the company. It's not the typical fare for this show, but as I read it, all these questions emerged about how to write about design in a sort of general context, the evolution of Apple's design teams and the increasing influence, and what happens when aesthetics get in the way of functionality. With these questions in mind, I invited Tripp on the show to talk about Apple and design and writing and reporting. Tripp is a tech reporter for the New York Times who has covered Apple extensively, and I was interested in how he learned to write about design and how design became the central narrative of this book. We talk about how Apple views design and the role of design teams in product development at the company. But this isn't just about Apple. There are lessons here, I think, about the myth-making that emerges around design, about the downsides of design getting a seat at the table, and the complexities that go into producing products at this scale. It's a really fascinating conversation about the company that has, for better and for worse, shaped how a culture understands design. If you'd rather read this interview, a transcript for this episode, as with all of our episodes, is available on Patreon. Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you who help support the show each month. Supporters get bonus interviews, an exclusive monthly newsletter, and all sorts of other additional content. Students can support the show for just $3 a month, and we offer two additional tiers at $5 and $10 a month for all sorts of other content as well as early episodes. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access to all of this content. Thanks for listening, and here is my conversation with Trip Mickle. company and lost its soul. And I think this is not sort of the usual type of book that I would talk about on the show, but I was very fascinated by this book. And I think there's a lot of themes that um, do relate to my interests because 
my reading of the book is that in many ways, this is a book about Apple in the post Steve Jobs world and sort of the battle between design and business or design and operations or something. Design is very a big character in your book. Um, so I'm curious to start kind of how, how you define the book and kind of how you define design's role uh, in this book. Yes. I mean, I, I think your, your read's accurate. It's, I, I don't know that I would use battle between so much as the, the inherent tension between those two. And, you know, it does, it does play out primarily in the, in the decade after Steve Jobs, but it's rooted in, in as all things at Apple are, in, in the Jobs legacy and what Jobs philosophy and, um, and aspirations for the company Apple were before his death. Um, and I think it, it really explores what happens at Apple when Jobs is out of the picture. He was, he was so skilled at balancing um, design with operations, which was part of the magic that created a, what I like to call a, a Camelot and Cupertino um and 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 led to the the number of revolutionary products that they released in in that decade after his return in 97 um you know increasingly over time as a consequence of his absence and as a consequence of the company's you know, astounding growth um the balance between design and 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 art if you will you know if you want to be more poetic about it uh, and commerce get out of whack, um, you know, as, as, uh, Tim Cook, who's comes from an operational background is, is very much an engineer, uh, you know, in mind and has less of those aesthetic sensibilities becomes more empowered and puts his stamp on the company design, uh, designs place and, and, and prominence in Apple begins to attenuate. And, and that's really the arc of the story that's told here. And it's told in a reductive fashion by focusing on the, you know, two figures at Apple who, who embody those, those two, um, those two poles of the company, you know, commerce and, and art. And that's, Tim Cook uh, on the commerce side and, and Johnny Ive on the art side. I'm curious, could you talk a little bit about sort of how you arrived at that tension as being the the sort of thread of the book? Because I think it's a, a unique conceit, but a very compelling way to tell this story. Was that something you kind of arrived at earlier or is, was that a story that emerged through the, the reporting? It, it, it's both things, which is a weird way of answering your question, but it, it's both something that I arrived at early, but then in, in terms of how it played out in the structure, that was something I arrived at later through the process of writing. I arrived at it early because in 2019, when Johnny Ive left the company, there was a scramble among uh, all Apple reporters at the time, and I was covering Apple for the Wall Street Journal, to explain why this, this seminal figure at the company was, was departing. I mean, it just mm. caught many people off guard. Um, those of us who've been covering Apple for some time, it was, it was not all that surprising because it was known but hadn't been reported that Johnny Ive had gradually stepped back from being active at the company. And this right. was part of the reason that that I had been reporting about about Johnny Ive for some time. When I when I landed in San Francisco from Atlanta, where I'd been a 
I've been reporting on alcohol and tobacco of all things and, and moved oh. to move to San Francisco to, to cover tech and, and Apple. I uh, had a coffee with a, a local journalist named John Markoff and was getting mm-hmm. his guidance on, on what to focus on at Apple. And he said, well, I've, I've got, you know, something you should consider. And that's, you know, Johnny Ive and the battery and the battery is this exclusive club in San Francisco. And he didn't tell me any more than that. He just said, you should look into this. Um, and wow. over the course of, I don't know, two and two years and change or something like that, I, I just would ask people, you know, Hey, what's going on with Johnny? And I'd learn bits and pieces of him, him not being engaged. There were just stories about him not being as engaged in the company as you would expect for somebody with the, with the title of chief design officer. And in the course of one of those conversations, somebody goes, yeah, there was this one time we were all at the battery where he was basically, you know, he had basically turned that into his office and we all came there and we were there for a meeting and he was three hours late. And I, it was just like the light bulb went off in my head. I was like, oh, this is this story is the story that I've been looking for. But the question that followed that was, well, but like, why? Why was he you know, doing his meetings from the battery? Why was he three hours late? And through the course of reporting, I, I came to learn that 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 over the course of the decade after Steve Jobs, Johnny Ive became increasingly frustrated with how the company began to be more focused on operations and controlling costs and became, you know, as he told others, a place led by left brain leaders instead of one that was either led or you know, or driven by right brain thinkers as it had been in the, in the decade that jobs was in charge. I mean, and that, that story is a, I think a very compelling story in the book where, where the, these designers are just sort of waiting around for him <laughs> to show up. I, I want to step back for a second. Um, when you say when you heard that story that that was the story you were looking for, did you know this was going to be a book or when did, when did you realize that or, or sell this idea that you're writing a book about kind of post Steve Jobs Apple? So, so I wrote a story um, that was somewhat controversial about Johnny's departure from Apple within days of, of the announcement. Right. And, um, and it, it, it laid out this story that he had become disillusioned inside the company that he helped build, which I think is just right. a fascinating conceit, right? Like why would yeah. this, this person who was so integral to what this company became become disaffected over over what it was i mean in my mind it became it became kind of like the talking talking head song you know um you know like this is (laughs) not not my my beautiful beautiful house right yeah this is not my beautiful wife this is not my beautiful house right like it seemed like that happened for him and i just i was fascinated by that when the article came out tim cook was very critical of the article not of the factual accuracies um, in the article, he didn't take exception or point out any inaccuracies. Rather, he said that it didn't reflect the company that he knew. Right. Um, and so the article all of a sudden begins to get more readership. And uh, in the course of the next 24 hours, of an editor in New York a pub- with, a, with William Morrow reaches out and says, hey, I, th- I think there may be a book here. Um, the book he had in mind was a biography of Johnny Ive. Uh, there's a gentleman named Leander Caney who's written a biography yeah. of Johnny Ive. I, I don't yeah. think the editor knew about that. 
I felt like that ground had been covered. So my counter counter proposal was, why don't we do a, you know, the decade at Apple after, after jobs. And it was something I'd been thinking about, but I didn't have what writers would call like the narrative vehicle to be able to tell that story. There was no arc. There was no reason to write that. I knew the company had changed dramatically, but there was nothing that I could, I could, wrap a story around to tell that, um, to tell the story of how the company had changed. Johnny Ives exit provided that opportunity. All of a sudden you had a narrative arc, um, that, that, that could show or pull people through the story of a, of a changing company. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your sort of rapid fire education in the design world, both both design at Silicon Valley kind of at large, but also design at Apple. I think it's interesting that you, you're in Atlanta writing about, um, you know, whiskey and tobacco, and then you're in San Francisco and you're writing about tech. And then suddenly you're writing about arguably one of the most famous designers in the world. Um, how, how did you sort of learn the language or what, what sort of... Uh, you know, what sort of things did you feel like you had to pick up to tell this story? Um, you know, there, there, there are a couple of things that really, that kind of, I don't know, channeled my understanding of, of design at Apple. And those, those are largely relationship based, you know, it was about, you know, cultivating relationships with people who had a deep understanding of, of design, you know, talking with people like, um, like Hartman uh, Esslinger, who who was yeah. you know seminal in terms of defining the Snow White period in the 1980s for for Apple, and still knew enough about the way the company operated to help explain um, what design became after he left, um, and also knew the story of of Johnny Ive and like how he got the job to to stay yeah. on and and work with with Steve Jobs. Um, but, you know, beyond that, it was, you know, watching documentaries and or and or reading, you know, basic books like um, like uh, Hartman's book or, you know, uh, I'm looking up at the ones on my shelf, like New American Design or, okay. you know, uh, Less But Better, um, Artful Making, you know, some of these yeah, books yeah. And, and meeting with some of the figures or talking to some of the figures that that were, uh, you know, important in kind of the formative period of either industrial design or uh, UI and, and trying to, you know, gather what I could about the way the disciplines have, had evolved over time. It's interesting to me that Apple is sort of held up still in in many ways i think this is probably less so than it was but still held up as sort of the epitome of design and business and i remember when i was in school in design school you know apple was held up both for like the design of their products but also their branding their advertising is just like you know this kind of holistic approach and and you sort of get into that a little bit and and i know this is outside of sort of the purview of your book but i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how in your reporting, how design is talked about inside Apple? Um, you know, how how does Apple define design? I guess. 
with reverence. I mean, that's the only word that I can think of. It comes to mind, you know, first and foremost, um, whether you're talking to somebody and, and, you know, it's important that, uh, you know, to the degree your audience does or doesn't know this, Apple is so siloed. Um, right. You know, d- divisions don't overlap. You don't have a lot of cross-pollination between, say, people in legal and people in design mm-hmm. or, um, or even in, in many instances, people in software engineering and, and people in, in industrial design like that, they don't co-mingle um, and they don't cr- cross-pollinate. But the one thing that's almost universal was like the reverence for that for that design studio and for the designers themselves. Um, you would talk to some people who might be uh, in um, a recruiting or HR capacity and they'd talk about these guys as, and describe them as like the, the campus Jedis, you know, they were... Right. They were these right. mythical figures that that did all the great things for for Apple in much the same way Imagineers are held up at Disney as as kind of the pinnacle of what Disney aspires to to do and bring to the world. Um, and, you know, I mean, they're also kind of the cool kids on campus. Um, right. You know, if you if you if you got a badge and you were able to access the design studio, that was that was your cachet. That was your kind of point of arrival much more so than whatever allocated, you know, what, whatever stock allocation you might get from the company in any given year. That was what people really aspired to. Was that sort of the big change in the post Steve Jobs Apple? Is that some of that sort of company cachet uh, was lost in some way? Or were there other sort of process changes or institutional changes in how design was thought of or treated uh in the tim cook era do you know what I, you know what i mean yeah no it's not there's i i would argue there's been no real diminishment in terms of this mm. the kind of the the theoretical standing of of design at the company it's still revered but i think it's it's um its place in the hierarchy of the company, and this is a very hierarchical company, has changed. Um, when when Steve Jobs was there, you know, he was, you know, he told his uh, biographer Walter right. Isaacson that 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 Johnny Ive was the second most important person at the company with the most operational power outside of Jobs himself. Um, right. He he really put Johnny at the top of the the totem pole, so to speak, and and most things flowed from Johnny and the design studio down through the rest of the company. Um, what happens after Jobs' death is that the company goes through this insane growth, and instead of making twenty million iPhones a year, it's making two hundred million iPhones a year, and to shoulder that load, they need to hire a lot more staff. And um, the book goes into some detail about the way the studio was structured and some of the rules that existed to kind of protect and and preserve the the ethos of design and kind of the um, uh, I guess the the reverence for design and, and over time like some of the some of those those rules are are violated because you just have a lot more people coming in and out of the design studio, which beforehand was, was relatively bespoke and, and, uh, and they did a a pretty good job of maintaining order in terms of who came in and out. 
I'm going to ask a question that is going to sound like a like a criticism or like mm-hmm. I'm 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 uh, I have a problem with your writing and I, I I hope it doesn't come across this way because it was something I found myself thinking about a lot in sort of the the myth making of Apple's design team and I'm wondering if you could kind of help me understand this and pick this apart a little bit because there is this myth um, you know you you say that in the book you said that jobs kind of made Ives central to product development. And then the quote to Walter Isaacson that you were mentioning is Jobs said he gets the big picture. Um, he's He understands Apple as a product company. He is not just a designer. And all of this is sort of, you know, in this myth making of the design team at Apple. But then at the same time, you were sort of writing about a little bit the development of the iPod and sort of the conflicting teams there. And uh, when I've came in and his team came in to, to work on the products, it always seemed later. It didn't seem like the design team was actually sort of developing these new product categories aside from the watch, which we can talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, could you, could you kind of talk about where the design team came in and how much they were really driving product development or product categories or was it really a sort of aesthetic and and um uh kind of shape uh process uh no i think that's a totally valid question certainly don't take that as a criticism i think there's an issue of chronology there um Mm -hmm. when you look at the ipod if you think about it let's let's back up one further product you know to the imac um i mean design with the imac saved apple I mean that it's that simple. Um, right, right. That 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 product was a product that that was a a runaway success, largely because of the way the computer looked, um, and you know, and certainly the engineering and the way it functioned and everything else. But mm-hmm. it was sold to the country uh, based on how it looked. I mean, Jobs unveiled it and said, yeah. "It's like it's from another planet, a planet with better designers." Right. <laughs> right, right. The company was was basically bankrupt at that time. You know, I mean, this this became the fastest selling computer of all time. So that puts design into the conversation in a way that it hadn't been before then at Apple. So that's step one. Step two, iPod. Um, if you look at the iPod, you're totally right. It was a product that was that was kind of driven by by like more of the engineering side of Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, Johnny came in late. He was asked to what he said, you know, to what he, 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 this, he bristles at this, but was asked to essentially, um, skin the product. Um, right, so, right. you know, just give it, give it, give it, a, you know, an external aesthetic and look and feel and everything else. But in doing so, he was very insistent about the notion of white and the white headphones. Those white headphones became the, focal point of the marketing and the advertising campaign that was so memorable that we all know with the colors and the white headphones and everything else, they became kind of what, you know, in, the, in, in pop culture was a jumping off point for why that product did well. You know, people also fully understand that the product did really well because iTunes made it very easy to transfer um, right. songs right. and everything else, right? But at that point, you're right. You know, design was not front and center. It is in the wake of that that design becomes more of a a a center centerpiece of where product development begins. If you look at 
at the um, MacBook Air, you know, yeah. and and yeah. and the and the way MacBooks began to be made around that time, and what that did for our notion and understanding of how slim and slender and lightweight lightweight laptops could be, that was design driven, right? Um, and okay. it was it was design driven, but then also the execution of it was was largely carried out by an operations team that was able to get the CNC machines to <laughs> to cut the aluminum and 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 fulfill that kind of you know design spec that that Johnny Ive and the team laid out. And then with the iPhone, that was you're right. It was a oh, it was that a, was it, I said iPod, but I meant yeah, iPhone. An iPhone. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and with the iPhone, you did have a team effort, but you know, you have to like the one thing that I think, you know, points to Johnny's role in it is that some of some of the the key figures who were searching for a new way to have a user interface, they they housed that project inside the design studio, which mm. spoke to the power of the design studio inside the company. Johnny could essentially house that fund it, protect it, nurture it, and then present it to Steve Jobs, who, when he first saw it, I mean, it was on this giant table, right? Was dismissive of it. He was like, well, we can never do anything with this. But Johnny then, you know, says to him, well, like, but Steve, think about the idea of like this, you know, this touch face, this touchscreen experience being on the back of a you know, a camera, for example, you know, a digital camera, as opposed to a bunch of buttons, you're, you're just touching the screen itself. And that was part of the inspiration for Steve to give the idea a, a second, a second look and a second thought. Um, and, and then that, it, all came, that all came from the design team. Then that, 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 that was coming from like the, you know, like Rubenstein and, and those guys. No, Ruby, Ruby was mostly gone by this point. Okay. And, and, um, and yeah, so what what then comes out of that that while that was housed in the design studio, what comes out of that is like kind of like a I don't know a three headed monster of development that is anchored by Steve Jobs. But you had Scott Forstall developing the right. software, you had Tony Fidel leading the the engineering effort, and then you had Johnny Ive and the design team developing kind of the look and feel that would bring it all together. So yeah, yeah, I mean you're right. Like this is there this, there is a team component of this, but but the one thing Jobs did over time was elevate elevate Johnny further and further in terms and empower him more and more. So the quote I the quote to me is like is important in so much as what it signifies and what it told the world before Jobs died and and how it entrenched Johnny at the company. Um, as much as anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you. Th this sort of leads into perhaps a two-part question. You write this really interesting passage, and forgive me, I, I, I can't remember if this happened after Steve Jobs or while, while Jobs was still alive, where, where Johnny essentially kind of co-ops this this operations teams that he renames manufacturing design uh and so there's now this sort of triad of design teams there's industrial design product design and manufacturing design was this was steve jobs still alive at steve jobs point? was still alive then yeah yeah so can you talk about sort of those three those three teams i think you were starting to get into this a little bit and sort of how those work together because i'm the, the question that i'm getting to is like 
the constraints of like chip design or uh, you know the the size of hard drives or something was that being driven by these design teams at this point or were were these were those separate teams like the actual how it works was that still happening somewhere else so manufacturing design was was something that that Johnny brought into the fold alongside product design and part of the reason that anecdote's in the book is it's meant to to also illustrate like that even in someone like Johnny Ive, who in the book, as I, I noted, is, is, it can be a bit reductive, is kind of described as like an artist, a designer, yeah. et cetera, how somebody like that can bring uh, operational um, operational kind of like genius or operational kind of um, execution mm-hmm. to what they do. And so what he did was he built, the, he assembled this, this kind of triangle inside the company with industrial design at the top, product design in one corner and manufacturing design in the other. Product design was was kind of responsible for assembling all the pieces of engineering all, and, and all the engineering for a product that the industrial design team was driving the development of, you know, and driving mm-hmm. the the look and feel of, but also like the purpose of. And then in the other corner, you had manufacturing design, which was fulfilling these kind of like insane requests about how, about, about like making the actual product, you know? So <laughs> those, those three, three groups were working in harmony and, um, and that was really an outgrowth of, of Johnny's vision for putting design, I guess, at the, at the center of what Apple did with its product development. I, I mean, I think that's why that passage was so interesting to me. And I think that reductive quality that you're talking about is is true. And I, I can't help but think part of that is part of part of that sort of reductive view of I from the outside is partially his fault in some way, to be honest, with with those videos of him in the white room talking about like the the beveled edges and like the the intricacies of the curves he, he does come across as an artist then design does you know they communicate design purely aesthetically sometimes uh and and don't communicate sort of the, that manufacturing as much and i'm wondering you know could you talk a little bit about how that evolved post post steve jobs um, you know, where where I've did start to kind of take a more management role, more leadership role across the company, um, how that affected that triad of design teams. I, so the the triad um, during the course of the watch development had to expand considerably because, and, and I, you know, this is I guess a, a convoluted way of answering your question, but like it, it is in the watch that you really see you see kind of a change to, to the way that group functioned. Um, the watch had uh, three different, you know, materials for cases when it was launched. It had right. a multitude of bands. Each of these SKUs had to have a support team uh, of, you know, of operations figures, you know, essentially manufacturing design people and product design people to, the team swelled. Um, prior to this, there, were, as I alluded to earlier, there were a lot of rules about what you could and couldn't say in the studio. Johnny has this idea that ideas are fragile, and right. he didn't want anything that could interfere with an idea before he felt like it could take flight, so to speak. And so there were rules like you can't talk about costs, you can't talk about engineering obstacles. You were merely meant to kind of 
absorb what the industrial design team wanted to accomplish and then, you know, try to go figure it out later uh, on your own. I mean, that was that was kind of the expectation. Um, but as the watch process developed and you have these these um, there, there are many more people from operations coming into the fold, into the studio, they're not as sensitive to these rules. And so people who were sensitive can recall sitting down at the table as a couple of designers, uh, this, this anecdote's in the book, as a couple of designers are talking about the importance of, of how the digital crown needs to be made. And right, right, uh, these, yeah. these operations guys are saying, yeah, but we can save a few bucks if we do this this way of making it, you know, if we, if we laser etch it, instead of doing the, the more, uh, the more complicated and costly machining of it that you guys want. And the two designers are looking at the guy, like he's got three heads and saying like, wait, what are you doing? Like, you know, he's clearly violating the rules of the studio talking about costs and they kind of try to put him in his place by saying, well, that's not something Apple would do. That's something Samsung would do, you know? Right. Um, but that, that kind of speaks to how things, I don't, you know, how, how I guess the train began to veer off, off, off the tracks a little bit. It, it's almost like it needed to go faster and faster to keep pace with, with all the demands. And it began to rattle on the, on the tracks, so to speak. I, I want to come back to that for a second, but you mentioned something else that I just want to talk about. You referred to Ive as an artist, and you referred to him as an artist throughout the book, and I'm, I'm very curious about that decision. Um, you, 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 you refer to him as a designer sometimes, but you, the, the chapter about him is called The Artist. You, you refer to him as that. What a kind of... Um, can you talk about why you, why you made that decision? Why I made that decision? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly... <laughs> I could appreciate with your audience that that'd be like a little too twee or whatnot. Um, I mean, you know, part of it is, you know, the designer and the operator doesn't quite, you know, sharpen, <laughs> sharpen the relief between, between Johnny Ive and Tim Cook. Right. I mean, right. the the sensibilities that Johnny brought to product development transcend, you know, in the eyes of like a lay person, certainly not in the eyes of a designer. And I don't think Johnny would consider himself. I, mean, I think there's art to what he does, but I don't think he, 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 he would, he would put that label on himself. But, um, but what he brought to the product development process, you know, there was a, a certain creative aspect of it that I wanted to speak to and reflect in the book. And so that label, that label I thought was better than merely using the designer not to mention like if you just use the designer it would it would be pretty hard to to turn through all the pages because it would just be loaded with that word over and over again and i know that word's in the book way too many times i would hate to do kind of a control c and c or, or control f and see how, how how many times i use the word designer much less the word artist but but it was a little bit about about you know adding some poetry to to what he brought to product at apple yeah, that's 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 really interesting. I'm I I I have a couple other questions sort of about Johnny and and the process a little bit. Um and then I want to step back and kind of talk about sort of the the book at large again. Um but it seems to me reading the book, you know, one of the the big frustrations that I've had uh with Tim Cook or at least with Tim Cook's Apple is sort of the just missing his friend and his, uh, you know, his his colleague and his his collaborator. And you, you mentioned a couple times in the book, 
Jobs was in the studio every day, and that was not Tim Cook's really kind of uh, mode of working. And in seeing I've take on a bigger role and really lead the development of the watch, um, you know, I can't help but see Steve Jobs as a sort of editor there, a way to, um, you know, honor the fragility of ideas, but also steer those ideas in some way. And you talk about, you know, the sort of epic launch that I've wants to do, the $30,000 version, uh, the kind of focus on fashion as opposed to functionality. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and sort of, you know, what you were able to learn about I've kind of essentially trying to take on the jobs role, trying to be both designer and editor in that process. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, it's, you hit on a couple of things there that I, I think, I think drew me and, and kind of like um, drew me to the, to the topic and, and kept me motivated as I worked on this. One of those being, being grief, you know, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. often that, that you're writing about the business world and you're writing about grief. This is a, mm-hmm. a very unique company um, to lose somebody that was as beloved and also polarizing as Steve Jobs was. You know, people had very conflicting emotions about them, about him. But, you know, universally at Apple, there was a there was this period of mourning that I think for many people is not yet over, right? Um, right because right. it was so inspirational to work with somebody as gifted and talented as he was, um, and 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 few people, you know, probably felt that that as pointedly as as I've did because because you know they had this strange relationship where that was both professional and personal jobs had very few friends. He considered Johnny a very close friend, you know, that gets confusing for somebody who's, who's an employee <laughs> right, of someone. Right. right. Um, and, and, and then there's also the overhang of, of the shadow of jobs for Johnny, right. You know, his right. best work clearly had been done with jobs as his kind of his patron, his enabler and his editor. And so, in in the wake of his death, there's this opportunity for him to say, "Well, I can do this myself." So there, there's a bit of that in the background as well. I mean, these are these are all mm-hmm. kind of like interesting things to unpack, and were interesting to unpack in working on the book. Um, in the course of all of this, like Johnny assumes a lot of responsibility. One of the things that Jobs was really skilled at was not just coming in and 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 providing guidance, as you noted, for product development, being that kind of editor and pushing products in the in the right direction. He also made sure that even as he empowered Johnny, he kind of limited what Johnny was responsible for. You know, right. he basically right. ever saw a team of 20 and, and it was very much like, now you do design, right? He had influence right. over the product design team that we talked about and the manufacturing design team. But the team that he was directly responsible for was really about 20 designers. That was where right. he invested right. most of his time. Um, but all of a sudden in Jobs' absence, uh, he assumes responsibility for um, for UI and, mm-hmm. and for, for, for software design. Um, and, you know, and he also has the design team and he's developing this product and he finds himself pulled more and more into jobs, old role in overseeing 
marketing for the product. He basically tries to replace jobs and, right, and, right. you know, becomes overwhelmed and burnout in the process and, and, and completely and utterly fatigued. And by the end of the year, when the watch was launched in 2014, you know, he's standing before the, the software design team that, that he's been leading for some time, you know, this now all of a sudden he's in charge of hundreds of people instead of, instead of 20. And, uh, yeah, you know, they they're thinking like, oh, we just did the, you know, we just had the best year of our lives. We launched this new product. Like, this is this triumphant moment, and he sounded downtrodden and fatigued, and just said to them like, I I can't remember a year that's been harder for me. Right. Uh, right. He goes on a you know few week vacation, comes back, and by spring he's asking Tim Cook to to either you know hopefully lead the company at the very least to step back. From what, um, from the burden he was shouldering in terms of all of those responsibilities, and they reach an agreement for him to go part time. What well, do you have a sense of sort of the decision for Ive to take over UI and product? Was that was that a was that led by Ive? Was that sort of an ambition of his that then he came to later regret, or was that something that was kind of pushed pushed upon him? I think he wanted influence over that. I don't know right. that he wanted responsibility, all the responsibility that came <laughs> right, with right, it, right? right. And, and, you know, I mean, you may appreciate this. The book gets into it a little bit, but it also leads to this huge change in, in the UI team. I mean, they right, essentially right. go from from living kind of a, a, a 3D development process to yep. a two-dimensional process where... They were doing a lot of demos, live demos that you know were were kind of animated and on a on a, mm-hmm. on a screen. Right, right. And they transitioned to one where they're doing printouts because Johnny's sensibilities are still around kind of like the aesthetic. So he wants to see how it will look before he sees how it you know like how the interaction you know takes place. So it's 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 a, it's a change in thinking for the company as a consequence of this as well. Yeah, you knew exactly where I was taking that question because I had that that passage pulled out where these these UX designers were sort of confused that they were showing stuff printed and sort of frustrated that I was really only concerned about the aesthetics and sort of how the buttons looked and the typography. And there's this quote from Steve Jobs that is perhaps apocryphal because I don't think you ever quote him saying this in, in your book that design isn't just how it looks, but how it works. And the UX designers sort of echo that in their their demos to Johnny and my sense was that it seemed like I've perhaps forgot that in some sense uh, or, or lost sight of that in some sense and really did kind of go back to the aesthetics and how things look. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for people who were accustomed to working for, for Scott Forstall, this was a really difficult transition because they felt like, uh, there was a, a shift from the focus on how thing, you know, like how you interacted with the device to mm-hmm. the way the the way the device looks. And and the the book aims to hit on this by recounting how when Johnny first began to put his put his imprint on on the the new iOS that he would oversee. My memory is iOS seven. Yep. He, yeah. he he presents. Uh, he does some presentation for a bunch of bunch of um, bunch of 
people at the company. And a lot of the emphasis is around like new icons and the way those icons right. are going to look more contemporary. And he's getting away from the skeuomorphism that, that Jobs favored and that, that Forstall kind of maintained in part because Jobs favored it, right? I mean, here, you know, you're only a year or so removed from from the death yeah. of somebody you, you love. You kind of want to hold on to some of the things that they <laughs> they cherished. And and Johnny was really ready to move on. But um, I, I think to your question earlier, like this is a bit of a case of the the dog who caught the car, right? Um, he 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 gets responsibility for design, but that responsibility is like. It comes with a lot of burdens that I don't think he really wanted to deal with, including like, you know, bonuses and expense reports and like just stuff that, you know, Johnny Ive wasn't put on this earth to to do or manage. I mean, it's I, I think that's exactly right. And that was exactly sort of how I read the book. And I think, um, you know, tell me if I'm reading between the lines incorrectly here. I and, and, and I don't I want to be careful how I say this. Um, you know, I, ha- I have a lot of sympathy for, for Ive and the grief that you speak of. And I think I, I, I think that's real. And I think that really comes across. Um, but I think, I, I, you know, I went into this book thinking that I would uh, be very sympathetic to the Ive character. And I really didn't. <laughs> I, I, I uh, you know, I, I found him kind of frustrating and and kind of hard, hard to understand of wanting this power and then not wanting it and like, you know, wanting that kind of control, but then sort of, you know, shirking it, the three hour delay. Um, you know, you have this line at the, in the end where you, where you sort of, uh, talk about how like Tim Cook didn't really understand design and, and you use that word like aloof and unknowing. And I was like, oh, but that's I, like, he's the one who kind of seems a little bit more aloof to, to the process. Um, were you sympathetic to him or like, how did you kind of read, read his evolution through the book? I, you know, I'm, I, I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea that here was this, here's this figure who was dealing with grief, who was, who, yeah, who, yeah. Who, who, who assumed more responsibility than he could shoulder, who really wanted to make something happen, who was, who was stretched beyond, uh, beyond his wildest imagination in terms of, of the responsibilities he took on. But by the same token, like some of that was a mess of his own making. Um, And, and this is, you know, this is, this is an aspect of nonfiction, right? Like, you know, I, I, and while, while, you know, you can be sympathetic to Johnny in those, in those veins, you can also be kind of turned off by, um, some of his extravagances, you know, right. right, right. Like, you know, yeah, he has this kind of, um, insanely lavish 50th birthday party with, you know, a ton of celebrities. Like you can see him drifting away from the company. Um, you you lost me with him when, when I'm sorry to cut you off when it was, well, it was either his plane or his yacht, and he wasn't happy with like the soap dispensers. And oh yes, yes, yes. Apple right. designers to do it, and people right. got mad at him for that. And I was like, it was I a... really have a hard time feeling bad about <laughs> this for you right now. It was yeah, it was the soap dispensers on his yeah. on his private jet. Yes, no, and he had some some Mac designers work on it, right? Yeah. Um, and you know they're looking at these soap dispensers, going, I don't think this is what the board wanted us to do this week. But all right, man, right, you know, um, right. yeah, no, I mean, I. I you know, 
we're all complicated, right? Like yeah, there are no, yeah. you know, there, there are no pure heroes or villains in the world. Um, in most instances, right. I mean, we could, you know, set aside like somebody like Vladimir Putin or something like that, this day and age, but, but, you know, in, in, in this instance, in this corporate world, there are no pure heroes or villains. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're faults to be seen in several parties. I mean, in this case, you could also argue like, Tim Cook should have just let Johnny walk. I mean, it was 2015. He wanted to leave, right? Instead, he's got this kind of worst case scenario where the designer is still there. Everybody still looks to him for advice. He's still empowered, but he's not present. You kind of have, um, you kind of have an estate being run remotely, um, you know, or a farm being run remotely by, you know, by, you know, some kind of, right someone who's not there with with his hands on and then showing up and saying like oh no no you need to you planted corn this season no i wanted to i wanted to plant barley and they got to dig everything up and start all over again and and that was kind of what was going on inside apple um but tim cook made the decision that it was better to keep johnny and you know and not suffer the potential repercussions that wall street um might right. might condemn the company if if johnny left in 15 than it was to to let him to let him walk at that time um so i don't i don't know i mean i i think that's what's interesting about this is that you can look at this and 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 take um your own lessons from this if you're either in management or in the business world about how to handle these things. I mean, nobody would argue that Johnny left Apple the right way, but also would argue that like, how, how do you know the right way to leave a place that you've, you've spent, you know, more than two decades building into it, into the, you know, the largest business in the world. Right. I mean, and that goes back, you know, goes back to this subtitle of the book, how they became a trillion dollar company and lost their soul. And I think, you know, uh, coming from a design side, I came up in a design culture where designers were talking about wanting to have a seat at the table, wanting the C-level designer. And in a way, this is sort of the, what I found interesting about this book is that it was sort of a, it showed the double-edged sword of that. Uh, it, it showed that as design is elevated, it does get more complicated. It do, You do move away from the actual sort of core of what you're good at or what you want to do. And it seems it seems to me, we, we haven't talked about Tim Cook much um, in reading the book, that it seemed like Apple is and was a company that was filled with executives and and rightly so who thought that they could be the next Steve Jobs I think Scott Forstall was very much this way I think you know Johnny Ive was this way and that the only one who like really didn't think he could be the next Steve Jobs was Tim Cook and has kind of been the one who has been the most successful uh of of not trying to step into that role in some way right right no he certainly (sighs) He was ready for it, but he wasn't pining for it, I guess you could say. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you know, he did it. He did it out of kind of a sense of duty. And he's and he's um, mm. he's I guess he's his his he's caught his stride in that role. But initially at the outset, I think there was there was some nervousness for him. Right. I mean, he was all of a sudden being elevated from from the peer from a peer um, to, to Johnny Ive and Scott Forstall and, uh, Eddie Q and, mm-hmm. um, Phil Schiller and all, and all the figures on the executive team to being at the head of the table. And there's, there's awkwardness to that. And not only, and that awkwardness is compounded for Tim Cook by, by this, the 
deep, deep skepticism externally outside the right. company and the pressure that and, and, and the doubters who really didn't think he'd succeed. I want to sort of step out of the book for a second as we head towards the end of of the conversation, I imagine, you know, this book is incredibly well reported and your sources, I'm, I'm, there were times where I'm like, how did he get, how, how does he have this information? Uh, and so I imagine that you're still talking to a lot of those people. And I'm wondering kind of what your sense of, of, of design at Apple now, I mean, you just reported uh, a couple of weeks ago about this sort of relationship with Ive and his sort of independent consultancy is, has ended. Um, Design has moved under Jeff Williams, who is, you know, operations guy now. From my opinion, I think Apple's making some of their best products uh, that they have in a long time. Now, I have one of the new MacBook Pros, and it's like amazing. Um, what's what sort of how is design sort of living under this new uh, new organizational structure now? Yeah, I mean, I, you you said it earlier. Um, you know, designers long pine or, or or talked about and like hope for and aspire to have a a seat in the C suite. Um, and and the big radical change in Johnny Ives' exit is that the design studio no longer has that place, right? right? right. And now they're they're flowing up through the chief operations officer. So. Um, in terms of the way the operations have changed and the role of design, it is, I don't know, it's, it, is, <laughs> it is now more level set with, with some of the other groups at the company and, and not, not quite at the forefront. In many ways, much of, of the product leadership has, has shifted to the product marketing team, um, which mm. played an integral role during this decade as well. I mean, they were mm -hmm. kind of they they substituted in for jobs as kind of as as kind of the go between between you know divisions like engineering and software design and industrial design. They they did kind of kind of circulate among all those groups, so they were a a glue for product development. But now their voice is is greater and having more influence over what's coming out of the company than it did with with Johnny huh. still there. So so in thinking about future products and you write a little bit about the the long long rumored car project and sort of the the stops and starts there, Apple supposedly is going to launch a VR headset either mm -hmm. AR VR headset either later this year or next year. Um, can you talk a little bit about just sort of the role of research and development in new products and the design team's role in in those? Or is that something that design is still able to lead or has it be, been kind of relegated again to a sort of packaging, sort of like like I've at the, the iPod? It, it's not quite been demoted so far as to be packaging. Um, it, it still has tremendous influence. And, and, and what's going to get confusing over the coming years is like, Ives' influence will still be there, even mm -hmm. in his, even though he's like that. That cord has totally been severed, because the incubation time for these products is so long, and often the industrial design can be set and and kind of finalized. It may need some tweaks years before a product is actually released. Um, mm. And and you know, in the case of the headset. You know, they are relatively close to getting that out the door. What's interesting about the headset is it has been a project that's been led 
by engineering, which is not something mm-hmm. Apple has done since the nineties, really. Um, oh, interesting. And so there's a gentleman named Mike Rockwell who's, who's been leading the headset development. And, um, and so it, it will be interesting to see when that product arrives, it's expected to, to, to be introduced sometime, or I guess released sometime next year in 2023, you know, how, how it's marketed, how it's, how it's, you know, it's design looks and then, and then how, you know, how much at the forefront engineering is um, versus what we're accustomed to with, with typical Apple products. And it's such a well-oiled machine there that some of this may not make that much of a difference. Um, you know, right. people people who are familiar with the design studio um, like to point out that, like, you could hand a child a, a pencil and say, draw me an Apple product and they and they pretty much can do it right i mean that's how how well defined um their their design aesthetic and ethos has become and i think that was also part of the reason that johnny felt a bit hemmed in there um because it had become such a oil machine uh so i i think what will be interesting is if over time this kind of new wave of designers that are there um, if, if somebody kind of bubbles up from that group and, and, and sets a new design aesthetic for the company, like that would be really fascinating, you know, yeah, like a yeah. rebirth of design and kind of a, a, kind of a next, a next wave. Um, does it become a slightly different Apple than the one we know? Um, you That's know, who knows? Yeah. I have two, I have two more questions. Um, I, I'm curious kind of what, what the big challenge was in this book and in kind of writing about design, this goes back to my first question, Um, you know, not coming from a design background, sort of learning this as you're reporting it and writing it. Um, Thinking about how to, that this was not a book for designers necessarily. How did you kind of think about how you could communicate the role of design and tell that story? What were the, what were the challenges in doing that? Um. I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, the biggest challenge, you know, anytime you're writing about Apple is, is the reporting and the material <laughs> that you're able to gather because the company's so secretive and, and kind of collectively uh, buys into the, the corporate omerta uh, that they share there, that it, it's just really hard to get people to open up. Um, mm. Beyond that, I mean, I think, you, you know, you have to walk a fine line with, you know, with uh, writing a book for a general audience because... What I wanted to do was was make sure that it was was kind of like demystify Apple for some yeah. people, right? Apple yeah. Apple does a really good job from a marketing perspective of kind of just birthing yeah. products into the world, right? It's like it, it's like the Ten Commandments, right? Like they just you know Moses just comes off the mountain and is like here they are, right? But like nobody saw how yeah. those got those got carved or anything else, right? Um, and and Apple's kind of the same way. So what I wanted to do was take people behind the scenes and give them just a flavor, you know, like I didn't want yeah. to like to go granular in terms of product development, but give them a flavor of different phases of that. And so in the book, you know, you get that um, by, you know, by mostly through the watch process and the watch development. Uh, right. It was a seminal product over the past decade. You know, there's some focus on the deep research that the designers do in terms of learning about the history of time, you know, meeting with a mm-hmm. These are things that like, 
I'm sure you and your audience know is just fundamental to to developing any new product or, yeah. or building anything. But that's not something that, that kind of like the average reader would know. Um, so I wanted to be sure that that was there. And then on top of that, you know, there's a there's a scene where, you know, Ive and the studio is pretty frustrated and they feel like they're they're at a dead end with the way the watch should look. They're not happy with it. They have a design, but it's unsatisfactory. And he brings in Mark Newson, who's designed some right. watches. And he and Mark kind of have what what I picture as this kind of like design jam session yeah. where they have two sketchbook books out and they're kind of banging ideas off each other. And through the course of that, you know, they have a they have a, a, a eureka moment where they arrive at the design that essentially is the watch that we know and, and, and uh, many of us wear today. So I wanted to give people a flavor of how that can happen. And then lastly, I also wanted people to understand, you know, how much work and obsession goes into material selection at Apple. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think I think some people inside the design world there wanted to disabuse me of the notion that like, well, Johnny Ives is not an editor, right? Like he's more than just somebody who's like making final decisions about material, but I wanted to show the care that, that he brought to that process. Mm -hmm. And so there's a scene in the book, it's just like a paragraph or so of him evaluating swatches of leather, looking right. for nicks and feeling it for its suppleness and like analyzing it with a jeweler's loop um, for for how the grain looked just so that people would know. And like this spanned months, right? Like they were bringing in swatches yeah. from tanneries all over the world. There was at one point they were even talking about like, should they buy their own cattle, cattle ranch and <laughs> remove the barbed <laughs> wires so the, the cows don't get nicks so that they get, you know, kind of perfect leather yeah. that could like really, you know, satisfy the demands <laughs> of Johnny Ive. And like, I just wanted people to have an appreciation for that, you know? And, and so those were the, the ways that I tried to try to kind of peel back the design process without kind of, I don't know, um, you know, shoving people's nose in the onion, if you will. Right. You right, just want them right. to have a sense for how that works, not, not be overburdened by it. That's sort of what was interesting to me and why I asked that question is because, and, and again, um, there were a couple of times where I was like, Oh, trips kind of just like, I feel like he's just parroting Apple PR here when he's describing this product. Oh, know, believe just... me, I'm, I'm not parroting Apple PR <laughs> because Apple PR was not very helpful, but okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so I was kind of wondering, like, how do, how do you kind of break out of that? Because they do such a good job of communicating and describing things. And I think, I think you do, but then there are other times where it's like, oh, come on, like this, I re I'm reading marketing <laughs> copy here. And so it's interesting to kind of hear that, um, you know, the kind of challenge in that. Um, you know, your day job is a, a kind of tech tech reporter for the New York Times. What's next for you? You're obviously still reporting on Apple. Is there another book? Uh, do you think there's another book in the works? How what's what's on your mind now? I mean, I'd love to do another book. I mean, one of the things that I'm really interested in 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 the wake of working on this book is is the idea that um, that like the question of whether you, or not you need to be kind of like Steve Jobs to make something great. And by that, I mean, do you mm. need to be slightly tyrannical and uh, polarizing, but also, you know, the type of person who can build deep, deep loyalty and allegiance from the people who work for you. And so, so, huh. you know, I'm, I'm curious about exploring that 
conceit further, but uh, but I haven't I haven't quite settled on like exactly how to do so. Interesting. Uh, my last question is the question that I used to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Oh, right now I'm reading The Splendid and the Vile um, by mm. Eric Larson because I'm doing an a, event, um, a writer's a writer's event at the end of the month where Larson's going to be. And Larson happened to get his start at the wall street journal office in San Francisco. Oh. So I'm, I'm, I'm going through and reading that book. Oh, nice. Your book is called after Steve, how Apple became a trillion dollar company and lost its soul. It was a really, uh, really, really, uh, well-reported book with a kind of great narrative that, like I said, is not usually what I would talk about on this show, but the centrality of design, I think like, like I said, this book just does such a good job of kind of talking about the role of design, both in corporate mythology and and in culture. And, and uh, I really loved reading it and feel like I could talk to you for another hour or so. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been, it's been a good This episode was recorded on August 3rd, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>